You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Welcome to the podcast today, Jonathan Mitchell. He's a lifelong follower of Christ and has been a student of Koine Greek since 1962. He is a translator of the New Testament, and he is a complete translation of the New Testament. He also has several commentaries on Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, John, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. You can access his books through Amazon.com, or if you want to go to his website, you can find a more complete listing of his work, and that's JonathanMitchellNewTestament.com. It's all one long word, JonathanMitchellNewTestament.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-N-E-W-T-E-S-T-A-M-E-N-T.com. If you go there, I think you'll find a lot of very, very interesting information. So welcome, Jonathan Mitchell, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. It's an honor to be here. Great. Well, let's just start out with getting to know you a little bit. How would you describe your childhood spiritual experience growing up? Well, my parent, my father was a Baptist minister, so I grew up in a Christian home. My mother, when I was three years old, I know the date because we were still living in Los Angeles before we moved to Arizona. My mother asked me if I wanted to receive the Lord Jesus and do my heart. And of course I said, well, yes. And I believed that his spirit came and that in the spirit, he's been there ever since in and with me. And all through my elementary and high school years, I was constantly asking for the Lord's help and guidance in just everyday things through my life, from dealing with friends to passing tests to learning how to do things. Mm-hmm. My my mother, uh, father was also, I believe she was he was a Christian church uh, minister, and I grew up on my father's and mother's teachings. Uh, we were given various memory verses to learn. All in King James, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. I lived with my father doing Greek word studies, as well as teachings and counseling in our home. And he was also occasionally a guest teacher at various local churches. My, my father was born in 1883 and was almost 60 when I was born. And so he, it was like kind of growing up with a grandfather. And he retired due to an automobile accident uh, yeah, and so I got to have him home a lot, and and this is where uh, where I was first introduced to Greek. In my early high school years, I studied one of his Greek grammar books. Uh, it's called A Manual Grammar of the Greek New Testament by Dana and Manti. So that was that was it. Uh, Christ and the Father, the Holy Spirit were they were all just part of my life, you know. From, from as early as I can remember, and have mm-hmm. been ever since. Well, that's and it's exciting. I, I, when I was in seminary, I took a little bit of Greek, but there's something that's just very exciting about interacting with the original language 
yes. of the New Testament that just it makes you feel like you're much more present in in the moment. Amen. I I, I recall uh, there's the author back in I believe the 1800s George MacDonald, and yes, he was he was often recommending people, hey, read your Greek New Testament, get into your Greek New Testament, you know, and it was expected. I know my father went to a a classical high school back east and had Greek in high school. So um, back then, people were more educated in the classic languages than in our in our day. Well, so this gives me an idea about your about your growing up. How would you describe your journey into your adult spiritual identity? My parents uh, held before before us children. Uh, I'm number five of five. Uh, the youngest, uh, they held before us Philippians 3.14, as King James called it, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, that there was something to press for that, like Paul spoke of, uh, uh, beyond just being saved, and as they understood it, being saved to go to heaven instead of going to hell, uh, because that was that was the uh, the Baptist sort of teaching that I was first raised with. We were encouraged to always do what would be pleasing to the Lord, just as we would, and this translated into uh, do what would be pleasing to our parents. You know, this was Mm -hmm. basically that scriptural background. I was a freshman in college when my father passed on. That was in 1961. I always had relied on his understanding of the scriptures and my mother's. But now the question gave me, well, you know, what do I really believe? I had never really read the Bible. I just heard it all the time. I, I didn't like to read either. I was a slow reader. And so um, I turned back a four-year scholarship and dropped out at that point. Uh, it was the beginning of my sophomore year. Uh, I said, you know, this is what I want to study. And at that time, uh, the college I was going to, it's now Northern Arizona University at that time is Arizona State College offered a course in uh, Koine Greek. My professor was a philosophy professor with a college, but he he also happened to be a, a Church of Christ minister. And so um, he, he started us right out and translating the Gospel of John, and I, it was really exciting. You start out with the Gospel of John, and you get to in arche in hologos. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Pretty simple, <laughs> but also word. also there's a real depth in there that if anybody you're already yes you're you're already into a lot of depth even just just yes, starting there. Absolutely. So anyhow, um, I asked, "What do I believe?" And I wanted to really start reading, and that was in latter part of '62, and. Um, I later came back to school and got my both my bachelor's degree and my master of arts in anthropology. In next, 1962, that same year, um, my mother sent me a booklet called The Outcome of Infinite Grace by Loyal, L-O-Y-A-L, Hurley, H-U-R-L-E-Y. I don't know if that's available, and I think I've got his name right, a lot of years ago that laid out the New Testament verses that show the, the ultimate salvation of all. And I was just convinced. And I later read, according to the purpose, a study by George Houghton, uh, the teachings of Ray Prinzing and, and J. Preston Eby, who also 
believed in in uh, the salvation of all. I did not feel called to the ministry as my parents and ancestors had. I had a long line of, of history of uh, some of my uh, ancestors were circuit riders and different things like that, uh, preaching the gospel. And one of the most in-depth books I read at the time was Andrew Jukes' The Restitution of All Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I, rec- I still recommend that. He, he go- it was written in the 1800s and in the style and language of the 1800s, but he goes into it so thoroughly. I recommend it's still available. It's been reprinted. I recommend that. My desire to understand the Bible became really the driving force of my life, and I, and I feel that that was the leading of the Holy Spirit. I did not begin ever think I would start ever do a translation. I just wanted to know. And so I began collecting translations, and the Amplified Bible, uh, they were still just coming out. They hadn't done the full Old Testament yet, but they were bringing out this kind of translating that I said, well, yeah, that's right. And then uh, in, in places, uh, Charles Williams' New Testament came along, and he was doing the same thing. And, and then I came across Kenneth Wiest's uh, expanded translation. Uh, and it was just like, this really set my, my ethos, my, my goal in life. It was, it was based upon what I'd learned from my parents, but it was just going farther with a, with a different understanding and an adjustment of understanding. Same scripture, same Christ, but an adjustment of, of the understanding of some of those scriptures. So it sounds to me then that you're, you know, you're coming into this idea of believing that God's grace will ultimately be successful in reconciling the entire creation. What did you think, what did you call yourself, or is, is there a way that you came to spiritually identify? You know, I didn't call myself anything. I heard the call of some people that said, come out of her, my people, <laughs> Don't, or or go outside the camp, you know, those scriptures. And so I kind of distanced myself from, you might call it mainstream Christianity. And I was, I was entering into studies and research uh, during those early years. And so at this point, I, I would just call myself a, a, a son of God, a, a child of God, one born of God, a, a member of the body of Christ, uh, a follower of Jesus, I am both individually a temple of God and am part of the corporate temple of God. And this latter identification informs my current life in Christ. And with God as my father, I identify as a member of his family. And among the many brothers of Jesus, our firstborn, citing Romans uh, 8.29 there. So I don't really, I've, I've really not liked the labels because they seem to be divisive. And I mm-hmm. visit and, and interact with people of a lot of different camps of Christianity. And without rejecting them and say, hey, what do you have? I don't just presume that because somebody's in a different than option, I don't agree that, well, that they're all wrong. That they, everybody has things that they have seen. And so I've not wanted to say, well, I, I haven't wanted to just get into some sort of pigeonhole or box and say, well, this is me. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I, I want to stay open to where I'm still learning. I've been learning and adjusting my uh, understanding of the scriptures ever since those days in 1962 when I really began. Well, have you ever had a miraculous or transcendent moment that you can describe which affects, which ended up affecting the way you have come to see things? 
Probably not as as people would ordinarily define that question. The older I have become, the more transcendent my life and the world seems to continuously be. Uh, I've taken Paul's metaphors and even his apocalyptic interpretation of Old, Ten- Old Testament events. I use the term apocalyptic following uh, Douglas A. Campbell's wonderful, <laughs> huge book on 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 Paul's uh, justification in Paul, you know, yeah, the uh, deliverance of God, deliverance of God. Oh my goodness, yeah, what a a a young student, uh, yeah, a, a seminary student put here here in the valley in Phoenix put me onto that, and I just well I stayed with it till it was finished, and it it has influenced later uh, renderings in my translations. I continue trying to improve it. So anyhow, um, those. As interpreted, seeing, looking into the the, the worldview uh, as I can understand it and perceive it of first century Christians and, and the writings of the New Testament, trying to grasp what that meant in a reality that I could relate to in our our, our own day, it's like um, that has become my my reality. I believe that God is here. I believe that He actually dwells within us and that we are actually his children. The reality of Christ's reign within us as transcendent, as I can presently handle and understand, uh, I have experienced many situations in which I've always thanked our Father for what I perceived as being his influence or intervention, you know, as interpreted uh, in the the outcome of those events. uh, From the seemingly mundane and maybe almost insignificant to surviving life-threatening events. Uh, I, I do not call them miracles, but my consciousness lives in the sphere of the transcendent. I perceive God in all things and all through my life. So that's been my experience. Well, if you had to explain your views constructively, you know, not just saying, well, I don't believe this, I don't believe this, I don't believe this. How would you explain your views in a constructive way? What positive reasons do you give for your your outlook? I will say, start with a negative, <laughs> despite what you've said. And, and I'll say, I do, not have a, <laughs> I do not have a systematic theology. Uh, I was introduced to Paul Tillich in, in college in uh, an ethics course, and I've gone through, read through his three-volume systematic theology, and I've incorporated some of his definitions, for example, his definition of agape, love, into my renderings of the New Testament. I have encountered his work in, in other, other works, and um, having translated the New Testament, I have, along with my readings of many commentaries and quite a number of scholars from a variety of traditions, uh, simply set traditional doctrines on the shelf and said, okay, Lord, I'm going to put these up here. As I go through and I read, what, what is it that, that I am to see and understand here? And uh, uh, I, I feel that, that quite often we have Christianity and theology has put constructs upon the scripture, and then you read through that lens. And I wanted to take those constructs away, set them aside, not just reject them, but set them aside and really just say, uh, what is the scripture saying? Uh, I started with that, that, that in, in, in order to 
try as I translated the New Testament to try to, as much as I could, mitigate my own prejudice. You can't get that all the way out. You always have mm-hmm. that. I would have King James in the back of my mind sometimes just would running through it, and automatically I come back a year later and I say, oh, my goodness. Well, that was that was good in one sense, but yet you could look at it this other sense. And so it's been an ongoing process of doing that. Uh, so uh, I set that to the side during my investigations as much as I could, I could and, and just have tried to investigate all of these things, uh, kind of taking the attitude of uh, ad fontes, you know, <laughs> to, to the sources as uh, mm-hmm. one of the cry of the reformers uh, in order to simply see what the writers were saying and endeavor to learn both the historical and textual context of the writers as best as I could from as many people as I could read. Uh, my, my views are based upon what I perceive the text to be saying. I do not, uh, I, I try not to place these constructs or preconceptions upon the text. Obviously, many scholars have had their influence upon me. You can't get away from that, and a lot of that's very good. But in all of this, I've endeavored to see the main thread that flows through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, to see the whole thing, and to remain open to new perceptions. My theology has gradually evolved over all these years, especially over the past 35 years uh, of more intensive research. I try not to class myself or put myself in any kind of theological or philosophical box, and so the positive reasons was to now open up what I could see and as I read the, the Greek New Testament and as I translated it and considered what a variety of scholars were saying about each verse. Um, I was working on this translation. I began in 1988, and it, but this was part-time because I had a full-time job, and my first translations were very literal and very wooden, and they needed a lot of work. But all during that time, different scholars were feeding into me, you know, from C.H. Dodd to later years to N.T. Wright, uh, a lot, you know, current scholars, past scholars, and so forth. But um, that's a long explanation of uh, how I view my my uh, what I, my views constructively. I, I want to open up to the view of others who are seeking to know the truth, to be led of the, into all truth, as Jesus said, the the Holy Spirit would do, uh, and that meaning, how how do we more fully understand uh, the words that were given to us in the New Testament? And uh, that's what many scholars have been doing all through the ages. But I wanted to try to come to an, an understanding of what is going on. How can we relate it? to the uh, the roots of the old of the old testament you know in Romans 11 I think we've missed Paul's what I call um, olive tree theology there you know we were grafted into an old tradition and he, he said hey you know the roots are bearing you you're not bearing them and it's like well yeah it's something different it's something that is we're faith it's in a new covenant it's in a new creation as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.17, there's something different where he's, he's called us to a, a higher realm of awareness and walk in the spirit uh, that was to be the logical outcome of the Old Testament uh, 
And those roots are there. Even Jesus said, you know, on the road to Emmaus, he takes the disciples and said, opens up the, the Old Testament, the, all the scriptures that talked about him back there. So we have we have all of those roots, and we don't want to throw those roots away. But we're not living underground where the roots are. We're living up in the heavens, you might say, the, the air and sunshine, where the tree and the branches grow and produce fruit. And Jesus said, hey, I want you to abide in me and, and produce fruit. That's That's what our real call is. Right here, right now. You do have this view that that somehow God's uh, ultimate purposes in creation involve a final restoration of all things. And so I don't know if you're ever challenged about this point of view. What challenges do you get and how do you tend to answer these challenges? Because I'm, I have not had a really... Uh, public platform until more recent years where my my work's been published and gone out mm-hmm. in that way. It has mostly been in uh, small individual one-on-one, like if we were attending a fellowship and people, they mostly were not open to this view. They would just automatically shut it off and sometimes ask us to leave. <laughs> so uh, that was in personal experience. But things that are challenged in, uh, that would affect my work, like specifically on the translation, would be my methodology of translating. Uh, some, uh, which was, like I've said, was greatly influenced by Kenneth Wiest, and my my uh, rendering of the verb tenses. There are those like like uh, you mentioned, David Bentley Hart, and others uh, who will say, "Well, yes, but but not always. You don't need to press this too much." And so. Um, or in the offering of the different functions of, of noun cases and so forth. Um, I answer by saying that this is how I was taught Greek from my father and on through reading through A.T. Robinson's uh, A Manual Grammar of the Greek New Testament in Light of Historical Research, a huge volume. Uh, William Chamberlain, uh, An Exegetical Grammar in the Greek New Testament, the writings of A.E. Nock, uh, and other scholars of the Concordant Concern I will say these. I these are the scholars that have fed into me, and that I have with each of them. None of them that I fully agree with. I would I would pull from them, and all of them came to to build who I am at the present time, and my understanding, and how I how I think at the present time. So I just well, basically, as a defense, I say this is how I read the scriptures. And I lay it out. I don't tell you you have to believe me. If it's uh, like someone said, here's the dish I've brought to the the big potluck. Um, if it looks too, if it looks good to you, taste it and eat it. And if not, that's okay. <laughs> well, uh, let me just ask you this then: uh, as you put your theology together, what relationship do you see between the Bible, tradition, experience, and reason? For Paul, the Old Testament was a point of reference, but was interpreted differently due to the disclosures or revelations from God's Spirit that led him to perceive uh, that the rock which followed uh, Israel in, in the wilderness was a picture of Christ, that, you know, 1 Corinthians 10. For me, the church doctrine and tradition have been a point of reference 
but are now viewed as a, as I said earlier, as a construct that was placed upon scripture. Tradition often uh, is often put on the chopping block in my in my understanding. I, I, I don't say, well, this is what the church has always believed. I'm saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know. Um, and I won't go into things like, well, the Reformation, Luther, to where, what did he do with tradition, you know, and and others all the way through. Uh, I don't base my theology, as per se, on either experience or reason, but I do base my relationship with God on experience as informed by the scripture. I guess that I'm mostly uh, sola scriptura, as the reformers, uh, based upon enlightened and instructed reading of the text, yet always willing to think outside the box. I think that the Spirit of God who indwells us can lead us where no theologian has gone before. Kind of a little <laughs> tip of my hat to Star Trek uh, <laughs> for those of that days. Uh, using the metaphor of a train, uh, my wife often uses this metaphor, uh, scriptures are the tracks upon which my thinking and reason can move forward. Well, one of the things that's been encouraging for me is to find out that there were some of the greatest early church minds and scholars saw the original Greek of the New Testament, and they saw certain possibilities and understandings that, that inspired them to believe that God's ultimate purposes in creation was to finally reconcile everything back together in a glorious uh, fulfillment of things. And so I, what I'm excited about now today is so you can we can look back at those early optimistic uh, Greek church fathers and we can see then uh, scholarship like we find in like somebody like Douglas Campbell. Yes, who is pulling together a lot of really great work, modern uh, scholarship. And like, like you say, I think that's kind of how the train, continues to move forward yes uh, forward down the track and so I kind of like the idea that on the one hand it's sola scriptura but it's also nice to understand that in the history of the tradition there have been folks scholars who who have seen this before us and that there are modern scholars today who are seeing this too and that now we get to have sort of an expanded discussion about these things because the we're all able now to look at the same, basically what we have of the Greek New Testament, the variants that there are, and everybody is now able to look at all of this. And so it makes for a broader, I think, more interesting discussion that we're able to have about these things now. David, I totally agree with you. And on those traditions, I've, I've read a number of them, a lot of them, honestly, through, uh, through the works of other people, say, you know, mm -hmm. early on through uh, Andrew Jukes, he was quoting these early uh, early fathers that had this view that this was this was not something new, but we're, we're having to recover it, you know, and uh, and open that understanding. In that sense, I mean, the traditions that brought down the New Testament to us are important, but they shouldn't should not shackle us or or hem us in from moving forward in a sense of perhaps a uh, um, a broader understanding as many of us have come. You know, I didn't originally have this view. I was, I was grown up in the teachings of t t hell and internal torment. And yet I'm in coming out. 
uh, I had to set that that tradition aside, and that's where I where I put that tradition on the chopping block. Saying, you know, I think that those that brought that out led us astray, and um, I'll keep it positive and let it rest there. But I certainly okay. agree with what you said, David. Well, is there anything uh, particular that you would consider the strongest reason for your point of view that you have now? The strongest reason from my point of view is my reading of the Greek New Testament and the understanding that flows from that. Scholars have, of course, influenced how I read, but I read from a variety of traditions or schools of thought. Like I mentioned earlier, from the early 60s, I encountered folks who did not embrace the doctrine of the rapture. That was an eye-opener for realizing that there were diverse ways of interpreting scriptures, I'll just say. Collecting Bible translations simply added to this realization. Uh, formerly studying New Testament Greek and then reading scholars that spoke and instructed on uh, the Greek New Testament really set my compass for where where I was going. It's, it's really, it, I just go back to the scripture and rather than um, trying to go into reason or that that's just not my forte, you know? So um, uh, yeah, just, just reading the Greek new Testament, trying to understand the possibilities and even because of the possibilities, the sense of ambiguity, a lot of people want everything because of the, uh, the scientific sort of mindset that we want to be able to prove something. They want to lock it into one understanding. I've found that in many instances, uh, nothing coming to mind right now, but throughout, it's you. I would see how the various ways of translating a verse would just fill in a broader, uh, more uh, precious understanding of what was being said and uh, not necessarily in, in conflict, and yet sometimes in conflict. It could go this way or that. And to me, that that's like Jesus' teachings. He didn't always, he often did not answer people's questions right away. He'd ask another question or he'd say something that didn't seem to, to be addressing what they're saying directly. And I think it was put for them to think about this. It's, uh, I think the Lord wants us to be, encountering and interacting with him and doing that through the text if you can see oh well what if it's rendered this way and yet well what if it's rendered that way you know it, it just winds up giving a a much richer wealth of uh, potential from out of the scripture and if we realize we don't have to have that the, the main thing is is the living word within us as we understand this and how it influences our life and directs us is really as as the train goes along sets the tracks uh for us well it seems to me that it, well if we'll just take this metaphor as the train going along yeah that what you've wanted to do is to provide what you see as a more accurate translation of the New Testament. You have some really interesting ways of of rendering the verses and in, in, in showing different manuscript possibilities. So anyway, could you just tell us a little bit more uh, about all of that? 
Well, my translation stands on the backs uh, of those translations by uh, Kenneth Wiest, uh, Rotherham, Young, uh, A.E. Nock, and more recent years, Anne Nyland and, and David Bentley Hart. I've been I've revised certain things or I've added to, expanded a little more through thoughts that, that, that Hart has brought out. And so, um, but, you know, none of these seem to me completely adequate. And so that's why I felt bringing a lot of this together, that readers who do not know Greek should be exposed to other meanings of Greek words, for instance, so long as they, if those meanings fit the context and make sense. For example, words um, commonly uh, rendered like wrath or anger reveal only one end of a semantic range of how that Greek word could be. The um, swelling emotion and passion, which can be a good thing, uh, are on on the opposite end of uh, the spectrum of Greek orge, which, which also is can mean wrath or anger. So you have a a broad range. And when you're thinking, well, what is the context saying? And if we apply this to God, what do we we know of him? And how should we then understand this word? That that we take the whole complex of, of revelation that has come to us through the scriptures and said, all right, who is God as we're coming to know him? And how would this fit in, in who he is. Uh, another one, another word is thumos. Uh, well, the, the first word I typed back that was orge. Thumos, which literally means more a rushing ahead. Uh, and so it could be rushing passion. And it's at the opposite end of wrath or rage, as it's sometimes translated. So um, now the verb rendered perish uh, that in especially say in John three sixteen, more literally means to be lost, ruined, or destroyed. Uh, the English word "perish" meant all that, but in our day, it's taken on a meaning as though well, that's an end thing, and and if you perish, there's there's nothing more. But that word, that Greek word behind these, was applied to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, to whom Jesus came, and the lost sheep which the shepherds searched for until he found it. So. When we see that and understand, oh, uh, and, and and there's more to be understood on, on that John, the verses in John 3, but the aspects of the verb forms are often ignored, especially in the Greek tenses, that uh, Robertson and Knott classify as durative, indicating some kind of ongoing action, such as knock and keep on knocking, as probably most of us have referred have become familiar with. Well, let's 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 think about John three sixteen a little bit because John three sixteen it seems to imply when you just get the normal translations that you run across it seems to imply that those who don't believe in Jesus in this life will be forever rejected after death, and it reads, this is in the NIV, mm-hmm. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so the NIV, like most other English translations, for the purpose of readability, doesn't translate the verbs in this passage in the present tense in which they were 
written in the original Greek. And one of the things I like about your translation is that it captures the kind of the dynamic uh, yes. ongoing activity that's happening in that verse. So I just wonder if you could read your translation of John 3.16 and give, you, give us some commentary on that. Certainly. I have, I'll give uh, more than one reading here. It'll give you an idea. It might be a little hard to follow, but for thus God loves the world. So he's saying, this is how, or, or you could say, you see in this manner, you see God in this manner fully gives himself to and urges toward reunion with, that's from Paul Tillich, uh, the aggregate of humanity or the universe the ordered arrangement, the organized system, and that would be of, of life and society or the world. So that he gives other men, some manuscripts say the, or just gives his only begotten, only kin, unique class, son. Now, there's a reading of um, in the Greek that can be one word or it can be two because the oldest manuscripts were all in, we'll say, capital letters, and the words were just pushed together. So reading the verb oste as an adverb, it would be, say, you see in this manner God loves the sum total of created beings as being the Son. He saw all within him, the, the whole thing. He gives the solitary race one, that would be like the uh, only begotten, or Reading those instead oste as os and te, for you see, and I've supplied it is as a verb there, in this way that God loves the aggregate of humanity, even if it, even as it were his son. He gives the, and I've joined this by itself in kind one, to the end that all humanity, which everyone who, or when progressively trusting the successively and, and successively believing into him and thus being constantly faithful to him would not lose or destroy itself. I, I read that itself there because he's talking about the aggregate of humanity or the world or cause itself to fall into ruin, but rather can continuously have or would habitually possess and hold Eonian life. That Eonian could be sometimes rendered as age durative life with the qualities derived from the age of the Messiah. That, that being because we understand that the Jews had a sense of two ages, their present age and the coming age of Messiah. Or living existence of and for the ages. Now, there's a, n a number of, uh, of verbs in that where it says, for that God thus loves, that's the aorist tense, and the common translations usually will render that as a simple past tense in English. And I was influenced by A. Nock and the concordance scholars who say, well, and others agree, this is a fact tense, it's not talking about action. And so God didn't stop loving, it's better to just say, God loves. You know, that's who he mm -hmm. is, God is love. Uh, it it can and um, it can be read as a simple past tense, and I have some notes uh, in in inserted into my into my translation here for this. 
And I'll just read this version. I have here given the fact tense of the aorist tense of the verb love and verbs love and give rather than the simple past tense. The statements by Jesus is a timeless fact. It, it signifies that the object of his love and his gift, that being uh, uh, that being the co the cosmos, the object of his love being the cosmos, the universe, the world of men, and so forth, and created beings, is in view as a whole. And both love and the gift are presented as fact, as one complete whole. Punctiliar action is the technical term for the earth, which exists apart from any sense of time, that is, coming from the realm or the sphere of the eternal or the being of God. Now, then I go into where the uh, there's inserted, and I've set it off by dashes because it's a, a dependent clause that uses a present participle, and it's used to describe the situation about uh, those that he loves and how they come into this. And so I set, set it off, and there's a particle in, in, in the Greek text that can, can be re rendered as which or when to, to draw that, that uh, parsifal uh, clause into English. So it's either which or everyone who or when progressively trusting, successively believing into him and thus being constantly faithful to him. Now, that might sound like the kind of fly in the face of what I was taught. Oh, you're born again. This is an instantaneous situation. And, and that's it. But if you read this whole passage from chapter 14 or verse 14 all the way through, say, verse 21, you see it's these are things that happen and are involved with our life here and now. And so in the latter part of the verse, we say, but rather can continuously have or uh, would habitually possess and hold this Eonian life, this life that Christ is bringing us this life of Christ, which is really Christ himself in us, the hope of an expectation of glory. This is what it is. And it's for here and now that he's talking about this. So you will have these things inserted in, but it within finite verbs in the aorist, before and after, you have the inserted participial clause in the present tense. So it's, it's signaling that this is for here and now. Likewise, those who are here and now uh, living their life outside of the life of Christ are destroying themselves and uh, ruining themselves. Let's go. Let me read on to, to the next couple verses. You see, God does not send forth his son as a representative or emissary into the world to the end that he should continuously separate, and make decisions about, and that's different translations of a judging. The word to judge literally means to separate the issues out, make make a decision about, and then and so forth, or would at some point sift and judge a system or the aggregate of humanity. God did not send his son in for that, but to the contrary, to the end that the world or the aggregate of humanity would be delivered uh, through him. Then he says, the person habitually believing, progressively placing trust into him, see that's the present tense, just like we read in verse 16, is not being continuously sifted or evaluated, judged. Yet, uh, 
yet the person not habitually trusting and believing, in other words, not living joined to the Lord, has already been sifted and evaluated, and that decision yet exists because he or she has not believed so as to trust into the name of the only begotten Son. Uh, so anyhow, this is a dynamic situation. It's talking about before the, the conversation started with Nicodemus coming and asking, you know, uh, Jesus questions. And, and then Jesus says, well, you, and that's in the plural, you folks, meaning you Jews of that period. You Jews must be born again. And that, again, can also be back or and above. So I conflate those meanings back up again. In other words, to a higher realm or place, indicating uh, the realm in the heavens to where we're he's leading us. And uh, so he's talking about a birth. And, and a birth, there is a point of conception. That is a one-point thing. But then there's nine nine months of 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 uh, growth of the fetus until the birth happens, and so there's there's both an instantaneous thing when ah, we're impregnated with with the uh, the word you know we're born like Peter says of of that imperishable word you know, and it happens, but then there's there is a process before. The birth comes out, and we say, oh, we have a, ch a full-grown child here. So my point being not to put verses like this into some little theological box and say, okay, just believe, and you'll be saved. You know, It's believe and enter into this life that is to be lived out here. There's so much more in these verses. Uh, you might say, switching, Jesus used agricultural metaphors all the time. And where we have birth here in John, in, in John talked about quite a lot. Then if, if you if you move into his agricultural metaphors and parables, you have the, 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 the different soils, you know, and the sowing of the seed. And you mm -hmm. see a progress. The seed is, falls into the ground and dies, and it something happens underground. That's a process. At first, and if people who are familiar with the growing of a, 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 a wheat plant or some other grain, there's something that goes on. There's that life in the seed. And see, that life is is the word. That is the seed that has the life. It's planted into our soil, us. We're the soil. Either we're good soil or we're soil that won't produce really well. So we have all these different metaphors of things going on here and there. And we presume that all of this is talking about one simple situation, accept Jesus, go to heaven, don't accept Jesus, go to hell. It was so simplistic, a, a, a view of what the scriptures are about. Jesus is after a crop. And he says in those, in those verses of the, the different kinds of soils, he says, you know, there was only one, one kind of ground that was good. And the other ground was maybe good, but it was overgrown with weeds. And we look at that in Hebrews 6, and we find, oh, you know what? That, that ground needs to be grow, uh, burned off with, with fire to get rid of those weeds. That's a time-honored slash-and-burn kind of, of, uh, mm -hmm. um, of, of uh, 
agriculture to get rid of all of the things out of the life and then plant another crop because it was good soil. It used to bring forth, I'm referring to Hebrew 6, it used to bring forth good fruit. Then it became overgrown. How does, how does that happen? It's not tended. If you don't tend to something, seeds will come in. And if you're not constantly plowing it up, you're going you're gonna to have an overgrowth period. So that that was what was exciting to me when I first started seeing all these things about John 3.16. What I was seeing is God loves the world. God yes. gives his son. Everyone who is believing is not perishing, but they are entering into the Aeonian life of God. And those who are not entering into God's Aeonian or eternal kind of life, well, they're perishing. The perishing here is based on the Greek word apolumai. Yes. And that's the kind of withering that takes place when you're when you're separated from God's right. true life. So that the sheep, when separated from the shepherd, was in a state of apolumai. It was withering because it was separated, separated from the the shepherd. But when yes. but then the withering doesn't mean it ceases to, ceases to exist altogether. Because when the when the sheep is reunited with the shepherd, then there is the new life. And so that's got, that happens with the sheep and the coin, the lost son. Who yes. said not only to be lost but to be dead, yes, and now alive again. So it seems to me that John three sixteen is just making an observation that some are becoming believing ones now, yes, and they're receiving right now the Aeonian or eternal life of God, which comes through ongoing confidence and trust in the Son. And then others are not believing and therefore not yet receiving that kind of life, and so they're in a state of withering or lostness or perishing, because right. even though they exist. They're going to be perishing until they connect to the life that truly is life. Absolutely. Dead, dead well, on. That's a, that's, a, that's a much more dynamic way oh, of understanding absolutely. John 3.16 than, absolutely. oh, yeah, are you saved? Yeah, I, I believed one time, so I'm saved. That's right. And yeah, that's right. I want to point out one small thing is about those uh, destroying or being lost or—, or uh, coming apart you know this the the verb is in the middle voice that means the subject acts upon itself passive voice is the subject is acted upon so this is the middle of voice so it says so that they would not lose or destroy them itself or themselves or cause itself or themselves to fall into ruin you see, this is something that we're doing to ourselves, like you mentioned the sheep. It wanders off, it becomes lost. The shepherd didn't do that. It, it, it happened to it. The coin, you know, maybe through carelessness, the woman misplaced it, lost it, where'd she put it? The son, uh, the prodigal, decided, well, you know what? I want to I leave the father's house and I want to I have my hairs go out. And he was sent out with the, with the father's blessing, so to speak. But when he comes back, the father's been watching all that time. There's no condemnation. He won't hear the, the, uh, the prodigal's words, so to speak. Clothes him with honor, a ring, shoes, throws a celebration. What a picture, you know, what a picture of even those he, he had been out and he had destroyed himself to where his father in that relationship said, he's dead. My son was yeah, dead. He's alive. It's interesting in this covering that brings life. I've thought about, you know, in the, in the creation accounts and the, 
you know, Adam and Eve, they have this shame and then God makes the animal skins and, and covers their shame. Yes. And and then, you know, in the fifth chapter Yeah, in the fifth chapter of Romans, it's like humanity is covered in in sin and death by what Adam does, but then come at but then Jesus comes along and covers that sin and death and righteousness and life. And then you sort of see that too in the same thing where the where the son is coming back full of shame and guilt and remorse and the father runs out and covers him in life and sonship. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. You know, I just gave myself chill bumps. Uh, yeah. It's it's just <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's such good news, you know. And then and then it's like what the father did with the son coming back was what Paul says in Second uh, Corinthians five nineteen, not holding our trespasses against us. The father did not hold the son's trespassing. It's just ah, you come back to life. We don't. There was rejoicing with the shepherd when he picks up the sheep and brings it back. Hey guys, let's rejoice with me. I found the yes. one that was lost. Yeah, it's interesting that the uh, that the son comes back and he's covered. The father forgives, and then it's the fatted calf that is sacrificed. Yes, it's a celebration. As a celebration, as a, yeah. as a uh, yeah, as a celebration. Yeah. Scott uh, Scott Clout he pointed that out in yeah. uh, in, in his. That's very good. His observation about that, I thought that was I thought that was really good. Let's well, talk that's, about another. That's kind of a picture of of okay. the messi- messianic banquet that we hear about, you know, that the coming of the Christ was going to bring in all of that, you know, and it happens after or with, you might say, we don't have to put, you know, often we get too time conscious about when did this happen? That have, it's like, it's God's work. He does it. And you can see through so many different pictures, he's given us so many different pictures and metaphors to see the manifold wisdom of God in operation through through Christ. And we learn about God, the Father, Christ, the creation, the purpose of everything here through all of these different pictures that he's beautifully given us throughout the New Testament. Well, there's one, there's one picture that's kind of scary that we get in the New Testament, and it's a passage that we find in Matthew 7, 13 to uh, 14. And the advice Jesus gives there, as it's normally translated, is enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Um, so on the on the first reading of that, that passage can seem, you know, pretty discouraging because it seems to say that only a few people will ever make it into heaven because the gate is so narrow and the road is so hard. Uh, When you look at it with this present tense durative sense of the verbs that are going on there, it really opens up the text in in an interesting way. And I wonder if you could talk about that in your translation. Certainly. Another One thing I want to point out at the start is here's where a construct has been placed over that verb or that, that passage of those two verses that that, oh, this is talking about whether or not you make it into heaven. And when you read the, this, the, this passage with that particular construct or that through that lens, it's like you've, you've already there distorted because he doesn't bring that, that into, into this situation at all. He says, I am the way, 
you see, in John, he says it, uh, and follow me, take up your cross and follow me, he says later in Matthew. Let me, But let me read how I have run, rendered this. He says, you folks, number one, he's, he's addressing his audience. You folks enter at once through this or the narrow, restrictive and cramping gate. He's, he's admonishing them. Because wide is the gate and spacious or roomy, having the characteristics of free open country, is a roadway habitually leading off into the loosing away of loss, ruin, and destruction or demolition. And many are the folks continuously or one after another in a steady stream entering through and by means of it. For this or thee, can read either one, this gate is narrow, cramping and restrictive, which is habitually leading off into the life. And this path or this way has been compressed and squeezed to where the traveler is being pressed and encumbered. I've added uh, as an explanation in brackets there. And the folks presently finding it are few. You see, that was once again the uh, the, the present tense. The, the, there were only a few starting out. He started out with just twelve, and then it began. And he was describing mm-hmm. an ongoing situation right then and right there. And he look. You look around. He, he can say, "Look, uh, it's like him saying, look, the the fields are white under harvest.' You know, if you don't harvest them, that crop's going to be lost." But when it comes to crops, in that sense, the real subject is the land, not the crop. It's the the land is to produce a harvest of fruit, just like the vine is to produce fruit. But I hope yeah. I hope that's helpful there. That is talking about right now, present tense things, and we can look even in our day and say the same thing. It's still going on. There are few that are finding it, and so that's why we are called to preach the good news, so that they will not continue destroying or losing themselves and find the life that is within Christ. Sometimes people will say, well, well, if everybody's ultimately going to be with God at some point down the road, then why preach the gospel? Why tell anybody about, why tell anybody about Jesus? And, and the, my answer is because— Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life right now. Right now. And, right, and and by receiving him right now, we get to enter into the goodness of that kind of life, which which transcends the world. And right. if we don't do that, then we enter right now into the kind of destruction and the withering, that apolumai, that right. happens when we, can, when we disconnect ourselves from the true sense of life. So... Yes, I, the reason I want to tell people about this is I don't want them withering away on the vine, shriveling exactly. up and having a life that's not really life. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is available to everyone right now, and it has been since Christ brought this to us. And so this is why it's like, hey, come on, you know, uh, come to the feast. You know, it's, it's given freely through grace, you know, and he's not holding it against you. And people's lives that have been brought to this do change dramatically. There is a change and they find that life is within them right here and now. Well, let's, let's look at another passage. This is from second Thessalonians one verse nine. And this is a passage from Paul that sometimes brought up to say, well, you know, if you don't accept Jesus, 
you know, God is going to destroy you and cast you away from him forever. And so the way a lot of English translations read it, this is the New International Version. Second Thessalonians 1.9 reads, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so that seems to be saying that that those who don't accept Jesus, that they're, they're going to be shut out forever and they're not going to have any, that's going to be it. And there's, there's not going to be any hope for them. Yeah. How would you, how would you look at second Thessalonians one nine? Well, first of all, we'll start with my translation. These certain folks, and he's talking about the ones of the context there who will proceed paying the thing that is right or incur justice, fairness, and equity, which is ruin in and pertaining to the age of the Messiah. Now, this, the word age there is uh, an unspecified period of, of ruin or destruction or ruin for an age, uh, Ionian destruction having the character of the age, or even it could be lifelong destruction or ruin. And then I've inserted the word coming there to show that the the preposition is a preposition of movement from something. And so come I've inserted their coming from the Lord's face or uh, equals uh, Christ or possibly even Yahweh's presence because the Lord's, I, I include that to show the continuity of both Old and New Testament because the Septuagint, which is mostly what the New Testament uh quote, uh, they use the word Lord for Yahweh in the Hebrew. So anyhow, even coming from the glory and assumed appearance of his strength or spreading from the manifestation which calls forth praise and having the character of his strength. So they're going into here they're receiving what is right. They're receiving ruin. That was part, that was the judgment coming, and that came upon Israel that, that made them lost sheep. That was per, uh, pertaining to this age, and it was. But it was also it was coming from the Lord's faith and from the glory of His assumed appearance, that of His strength or the, a manifestation which calls forth praise. So this is this has a positive thing. And you could, I, I have a reference there to Revelation 14, 10 through 12. Well, I, I won't, I'll pass on that. But anyhow, whenever he may come and go and be made glorious within his set-apart folks. Now, you see, that's another verse that's very important that shows what the context is of verse 9, verse 10. And to be wondered at within the folks believing in that day, seeing that our testimony or evidence being placed on you was believed and is trusted. So he's talking about, first of all, first century context. He's talking about mm -hmm. those folks right there. And it's not about some future coming of the Lord, but wherever he may, I say, come and go there. I've, I've taken the liberty to conflate the, 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 the verb means either to come and go. In the Old Testament, we see God coming and going, interacting with Israel all through the Old Testament. He comes and goes. And so we've, we've through our, 
our end time theology construct, eschatology of, of, oh, the Lord's coming. That's the end of everything. And it's like, wait a minute, read, read the, uh, the message in, in Revelation 2 through 3 of God to the churches. And he says, I'm going to come and take your lampstand away. I'm going to come and judge that woman, you know, that, that is leading you into idolatry and cast her into a bed. I'm going to come doing that. And, and right before that, at the end of chapter 1, he says the, um, the uh, seven stars and the seven angels, often translated angels, are, are right here in his hand. And then he says, and I think it's the stars are, are the set uh, or the eight. No, the ancients are the seven called out communities or churches. Then in the next verse, which broken off there probably shouldn't have been in, in two, one, he's referred to as the one. Oh yeah. It's the lampstands. My memory's coming back. The seven lampstands and seven and, and the seven stars says, in verse two, Revelation two one, he he is uh, he is the one continuously walking through among or within the the lampstands, and the lampstand is a, was a figure. He just told us, oh, that's the called out communities or the churches. He's continuously walking among us. He's continuously. He doesn't wait till the end to being a course correction to bring some judgment. You know, we saw in the early church uh, even. However, you want to view uh, the situation with Ananias and Sapphira, there was there was a decision made right then. It doesn't say that Peter made it either. It's just that each of them apparently had a heart attack or something, and they died. But there was there was judgment going on, and humanity needs the interaction of God all the time. We do. We need that 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 word from the Lord within us, that judgment sometimes where he maybe calls us up short, where we start going in the wrong direction and so forth. So these are all good things. And that's a whole nother topic on the judgment of the Lord. It's all when the, uh, was it in the old Testament where the Jeremiah or was Isaiah it said when, when his judgments are in the Lord, the people learn righteousness. When their judgments are in the land, the people learn righteousness. So, but that's diverging into a whole nother uh, subject. But if you realize that his judgments are good, the judgments of the Lord are, are good and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold and much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. You know, I'm quoting Psalms there. It's like when you realize, ah, Lord, you know, uh, look at me, see if there's any, you know, uh, evil way in me. That's King James, you know, anything that's wrong, correct me, you know, guide me in the way that's right. This is, this is applies to our life in Christ. And this is why all of the, the letters that were written to the churches were full of admonitions as well as declarations of, of uh, the truth of Christ and what he brought us to. Paul would usually begin with the indicative of a statement of what is and then he would end his letters with the imperative things. Now, that because of the indicative, walk in the imperative, do this, you know, walk in the spirit and so forth, love one another and, and all of that. So here, if you see that these are things that 
God brought ruin and judgment unto Jerusalem and Israel in AD 7, 70, I'm sorry. But um, it was all something that was coming from him, and he was coming in judgment. That old system needed to be taken down. He had done it in the past, you know, when Israel was take, carried off in, to Babylon, or and actually the northern country earlier than that. Just to kind of wrap this up, the second on the Second Thessalonians, I want to move on and I want to look at First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight next. But yes, the, I remember I first ran across this in Young's literal translation of Second uh, Thessalonians one nine, and uh, Young's literal translation says that the guilty shall suffer justice, a destruction and a owning or, or age during destruction coming from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. That's right. And uh, when I interviewed David Bentley Hart on this particular verse, he said that in the same way in the ancient world, you would, you would, the, you would get a judgment coming from the face of the judge yes. towards you. Yes. And so it was a judgment coming from the face of the Lord to you, That's right. bringing a destruction. Yes. But what we know is that God being good, the destruction or the judgment that comes from the face of the Lord is to separate us from that which is unworthy, that which does not flow from yes. love, which, which ultimately must be destroyed. Absolutely. And so, and so being able to look at that verse in, in that context, uh, Absolutely. really help me. That's very good. Let's just, yeah, let's do, let's do one more verse. Uh, sure. Let's do uh first Corinthians 15, 28. And that is uh, rendered in the uh, NIV, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. And I was just wondering how you look at the 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. Well, let me first of all read my rendering, and that will be the place to jump off of. Now when the whole, meaning all things, the whole, tapanta, uh, would be completely, supportively aligned in him, or this can also read attached and appended to him, or subordinately sheltered and arranged by and for him. These are all different renderings of, of the verb there. Then the Son himself will also continue being supportively aligned to, fully, fully subjoined for, and humbly attached under as an arranged shelter in the one subjecting or appending and sheltering the whole in him or attaching all things to him to the end that God can be all things within the midst of and in with and in union with all humans. Another rendering of that could be, maybe everything in all things should exist being all in all, would exist being everything within the midst of everyone. I have there in that last phrase, often the, uh, the gender of nouns and adjectives are sometimes ignored, and especially with the word all. The majority of the time where the word all is is used in the New Testament is talking about people. And yet the first opening thing, uh, phrase 
it uh, we have the definite article before all the the all and in the plural the all things that means the whole the whole of the universe you know the whole of all creation would be I say supportively aligned in him now that's really something aligned in him now if you follow on and read what uh, if you get my translation look at that that la- that phrase in him is in the dative case and it can mean in it's a locative meaning location or it could be simple dative of just to him or it's an instrumental case of being by him or for him now just taking that one that one word him and seeing well what was paul saying here wow I think he was saying all of this, but look at it from all these different views. And then he finds, then the sun moves into this. And I won't take time to go into all of that on, on this type of thing. The idea of the verb being appending and sheltering, it can mean adding a, a, a shelter onto a house or appending something to, he's appending the whole in or to himself, attaching all things to himself. You see the conclusion of that, that God can be all things within the midst of and in union with all humans. And all humans there is why I mentioned the gender, or the noun there is for humans is in the male gender. <laughs> what is that? Masculine. Okay. Masculine. The masculine. So it can be, I mean, what a statement. That, that that he would be all things within the midst and in union with all humans. And, and why I say within the midst and in union with, those are two different translations of the express preposition there. You know, um, you can be in the midst of or in union with. I could have also rendered it centered in or we actually likes in the sphere of him. To the end that God can be all things within the midst of all things. You know, this to me ties in very nicely with uh, Romans 11.36, another of my favorite verses. Has three movement prepositions. Dia, uh, ek, meaning from out of the midst of, out of the midst of, or out from. Dia, through, through the midst of. And ace, which literally, the, the main, often translated for, but it, the main concept is into. We have a circle here coming back. You might say the restoration of something. For out of him and through him and into the midst of him are all things, everything. That's where it answers to this verse here, that God would be all things in all. And I've, re- I've offered other things, everything in all things, because the form of that all of that second all is either neuter or masculine. So I give both renderings. He may be everything in all things, or should exist being all in all, very simple without adding anything, or exist being everything within the midst of everyone. So it is a picture that is so mind-blowing that all we can do is say, okay, Lord, I don't understand this, but it sure looks good. You know, it is just sure looks good. I wrote a number of pages uh, on this verse in my commentary on uh, 1 Corinthians. Go ahead and read some of that to us. 
First of all, I started out relating it to Romans 11, 36 that I just quoted. Into the midst of him is or will be the whole, everything. The preposition ace in two that is used in Romans 11, 36 prompted me to first choose the locative in him in my, in my rendering. And as the first reading that ends the first clause here, the parenthetical readings are equally valid, just presenting other views of what Paul meant in the statement. The universality and total inclusion of these two verses are really impossible to deny. Consider the idea of being attached or appended to. This is very much like 1 Corinthians 6.17, being joined to the Lord. He that is joined into the Lord is one spirit. What a, what a, what a concept. And the, the pictures and pictures the closest intimacy possible. Because he was comparing it, right? In, in the, the contrast was to being joined to a harlot. I mean, that was intimate union. But he was joined, I'm going back to 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Being joined to the Lord is that same intimacy, but it's in spirit, in purity. The reading subordinate, subordinately sheltered and arranged by or for him speaks to personal involvement and relationship, as well as to purpose. What this metaphorically positional relationship describes is what Jesus tells us in John 17, 21, 23, and 26. And I'll read those. To the end that all, hu all humans would continuously exist being one, correspondingly as you, O Father, are within the midst of me, and I within the midst of you, so that they themselves may and would also continuously exist being within the midst of us. I within the midst of them, of and in the union with them, and you within the midst of and in union with me, to the end that they would or could, should, continuously exist, being folks having been perfected, brought to the goal, brought to the purpose, uh, end, and so forth. Into, could be perfected into one. And remember Ephesians 2.15, he's made of the two Jew, uh, circumcision and uncircumcision, meaning the Jews and all the rest, into one new humanity. So that the, the human aggregate, uh, the system world of culture, religion, economics, or the world in general, can, could, or would progressively come to know through experience that you commissioned and sent me forth, and you love, accept, and urge toward union with them correspondingly as, or just as, in the same sphere and to the same level as, you love, accept, and give yourself fully to me. And I made your name intimate, intimately known to, for, in, and among them, and I will continue making it experimentally known to the end that the love with which you love me can continuously be or exist or progressively exist within the midst of and among them, and I myself in the midst of, among, and in union with them. Talk about a dynamic relationship and that's for the here and now because he was going but he was saying lord make this so for them oh so so this is the goal the destiny the finished product of the christ event it has been happening ever since the resurrection of christ the middle section of the verse describing the relationship 
of the Son to the Father echoes Jesus' sayings, I am progressed in John 14, 28, I am progressively journeying toward the Father because the Father is greater than me. I from the Father am habitually doing nothing, but rather accordingly as the Father teaches me, I continue speaking and uttering these things. That's John 14:28 b The Son continues continues unable to do anything. Well, I'll, I'll skip on reading that. That is what is meant by what Jesus said. The Son himself will also continue being supportively aligned to, fully subjoined for and humbly attached under as an arranged shelter in the one subjecting, appending, and, sh- and sheltering the whole in him. Christ was and is the pattern As the head of the body and the leader of the last Adam, he lives out of union with humanity in being the way, the path, and the life. And the goal, as Hebrews 6.20 puts it, the forerunner Jesus entered entered over us or on our behalf, down from or in line with the station order placement of Melchizedek, being born a chief or ranking priest on into the midst of the age. Now, as we bring together what each joint of the body has presented to us, the picture becomes clearer and more complete. It is as the risen Lord told John in Revelation 21.5, Consider this, I am, present, I am presently making all things new, or that can read, habitually creating everything to be new and fresh, progressively forming the whole anew. Or reading the word all as masculine, it reads, I am periodically making all humanity new. I am progressively, one after another, producing and creating every person anew while constantly constructing all people fresh and new, that is, continuously renewing everyone. I gave a lot of expanded meanings there of how that can be. That's always John 21, 5. Everybody said, oh, well, that's sometime way off in the future. But he uses a present indicative, present tense like everywhere else. It's just like, you know, we should be knocking and keeping on knocking. He says, I am presently Mm -hmm. making all things new, or I am presently continuously making all humanity new. What a, what a statement, you know. That's what he's been doing since the resurrection. I could go on. Well, what I wanted to get, what I really wanted the listeners to, to hear there is sort of what you might get from looking at your simple New Testament translation of 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight, and then the extra background that you would get by getting, getting into the commentary and right. seeing all the different connections uh, exactly. that you would have. But maybe the next question I have would be, if you could describe the spiritual benefits or the blessings that you have received from gaining this sense of the ongoing uh, work of Christ, the uh, where Christ is is at work right now, making all things new, and that we are even now uh, on this journey as a human family toward the ultimate uh, telos or the ultimate goal of creation that the entire cosmos would be reconciled in him and that God would be all in all. So as you have come to have this vision spiritually, what, what, what kind of blessings has that produced in your own life? 
it totally changed my view towards everyone when I first came to see this. And this was, talk about an epiphany. This happened in 1962 when my mother sent me that book, The Outcome of Infinite Grace. It just turned my attitude towards others in a completely new direction. I realized that at some point each person would be alive in Christ and I would I could relate to them as a brother or sister. Maybe somebody that I had always been at odds with or somebody who hated me or even people who were totally we would say evil people, you know. We 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 tend to limit through our own imagination by thinking of how bad people are to the fact that wait a minute, God is a God who transforms. He takes us into himself and he is a consuming fire that smelts just like, you know, folks should read Malachi 3, where he says, the one whom you seek will suddenly uh, come to his temple. And he says, and he will sit as, as a refiner of gold and silver, you know, and he will purify the sons of Levi. See, that's a fire that we are cast into. You might say that answers to the lake of fire, which is another big subject. It's a place mm-hmm. of purification and that, that in, in Revelation where it calls it a lake of fire, King James says brimstone. The word for brimstone is, is the neuter form uh, of the Greek word deity. So uh, some scholars have said that's just a picture of divine purification. When you realize that we have to have that happen to us now, Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come to you. We're, we're told that every, every uh, son he chastises, you know, and treat you as a son, otherwise you're not a true son. We go through these times, these dealings with God and with humanity, and you realize, well, he's going to do that with everyone because eventually, whether in this life or the next, that's that's a big thing that uh, evangelical Christianity and, and other strains of Christianity have, have limited everything. Oh, it's this life. Scripture does not say that. It does not say that it has to be in this life. We've put that that construct on the idea. So the big thing that happened to me was all of a sudden I started looking at people differently and it was easier to love them realizing, Hey, they may not be the soil that is right now. Maybe their soil needs to be burned off or maybe a plow needs to run through and and break up the ground that was packed down. That was a pathway and couldn't receive the seed. You know, it's not their fault that they've been, downtrodden or whatever and and they're like a hard packed path through a field and you cast the seed it's not the bird's going to eat it you know it's not going to get into mm-hmm. their soil so when you realize that this is god's god's work to deal with them as he de- deals or has dealt with us it just changes everything so the other thing is i better i came better to understand the love of god and why he gave his son to us, so that we could cease ruining and destroying ourselves. And it just illuminated and expanded my comprehension of God, especially as God being my father and God being love. It's like, oh, what a world of difference. Many people have been turned away from from following Christ because of the message that they say, what a cruel father God is. It's like, you're hearing the wrong, you're not hearing the full story, you're hearing the wrong message. You know, 
his judgments are true and righteous altogether, and and they are to be desired. They they transform us. Well, let me just ask you one final question, and that is, uh, what advice would you give to people who are spiritually seeking? Because there's a lot of people right now that I would say that are kind of on the move spiritually. There's something about the Christianity that they inherited or that they grew up in, which seems mean or narrow, and they they kind of don't know what to do. They're leaving behind something. They know they don't. That's not working for them anymore. But now they're now they're on the move and they're looking. And so, what advice would you give to, to those kinds of people? Well, first of all, come to the realization that God loves them and is their father. That God loves them. You know, if you don't know you're loved, and if you don't realize that God is your father, you have a hard time relating to Him relating to the world you live in, relating to what you're going through. So, you know, Jesus came to show us the Father to, and to bring us to the Father and to reconnect us and, and then to connect us unto himself so we could have his life going through us. Another thing would be that he is a, a happy God. And that's 1 Timothy 1.11. And the condemner of none, 2 Corinthians 5.19. And that in Christ, there is a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old things passed away, all things have become new. He wasn't talking about a literal creation that we look out and live in. He was talking about that creation of the kingdom of God, of the new covenant, of uh, raising us up, as uh, Ephesians 2.6 says, and seating us with him. Those things are here and now. We are the temple of God. God lives within us. We are his home. He comes there to be with us. I mean, if you look at, we're called the temple, the tabernacle. God, God's home was in the center, the, the heart of the tabernacle. And, 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 and he, he dwelt and met with Moses over the mercy seat. And that's, that's who God is. He, he, he put all, Romans eleven thirty two. 32, he put all under uh, locked them up in disobedience so that he could have mercy upon us all, on, on everyone. And that Christ, that in Christ, God made the Jew and the Gentile into one humanity, Ephesians 2, 14 through 15. To me, that's a tremendous verse. It could go on and on with, with keys to the kingdom, you might say, concepts that in Christ there's neither male or female. We've moved beyond that. We're, we're living in a different realm. It's just go on and on. It all goes back to understanding the word and, and understanding it. I've, I've endeavored to make a, a, what I feel is a more correct translation, but expanding it to the sense that people can better understand how Paul, the writers were thinking, what they were meaning, and to, to ponder and take this into our heart. Because it's, it's the word within our hearts that transforms us. So that's, those are the things those who are spiritually thinking, there is so much laid out before us. It's a very rich world. It's, it's like, oh, my goodness, we can enter into our inheritance right now, you know, because our inheritance is Christ. And we live in him. We live, move, and have our being. I mean, we're his family. My goodness, my goodness. That's, we're not waiting for that. It's here and now. 
the message of good news was for humanity here and now. And that's why we want to go out and spread it. Say, hey, guys, you know, yes, we all have hard things to go through in, in the natural. But boy, having Christ within us and, and living in this, in this realm, living in this realm of awareness, of, of union with, with, with our Father, our Creator, my goodness, it's wonderful. There's a big, there's, there's a, there's a world of difference between, you know, if you get a message that says you're really offensive to me, but if you can do some certain things, I might not cast you into my hell. If that's the message that you get, you know, it, that could actually cause you a lot of trauma and to go a lot of bad directions and feel like you're hopeless. But if you can get this other message that know that God is the one who is with us irrevocably and that in Jesus his love has been made perfectly known to yeah. us and that God isn't just with us if we get things right, but until we get things right. And God That's will not right. be satisfied until we're all brought together in one joyful whole and that we're able to experience that that wonderful uh, life that already exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. Once you get that as a possibility, then when you get into, I think, studying um, the scriptures, especially with tools like you give for people who haven't been able to study the Greek their whole life, well, it just expands. It expands it. And, uh, and like George MacDonald said, they might even get so interested that they might just actually advance to the Greek language themselves exactly. and, and, be, and become students. And there's so many resources and tools that are available oh, for yes. that now. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't think that you're saying, hey, don't read the Greek because I already did it for you. No, to me, no. you know, you're an example of, well, that's neat. That's neat. Uh, what he got out of that, uh, maybe I want to try that. Maybe I want to try that too and, yeah. and, and to engage in that myself. And if you believe that there's, you know, you're a lot more uh, inclined to go that direction. If, you're, if somebody has told you, yeah, go and look, there are treasures to be found. And, yes. and there's nothing like finding the treasure out yourself. Then you can better believe it. Because it's not that, well, somebody told me this. You've come in, to a certain degree at least, to see it yourself. Absolutely. My, my intention, like with my commentaries, is not to say, well, now this you've got to believe. My intention is to be a catalyst for going on beyond what I see. You know, to, to just be there, to be a help to people. And it's been a joy. I, I've reaped such benefit from it. But it's, it's a joy to better to give than receive, you might say. One thing that's kind of interesting to me about you is that, you know, some people do the work of translation and you kind of get the feeling that for them it's a job. But for you, it's the reason I think that you're doing it is just a continual sense of joy and discovery oh, yeah. and exploration yeah. and yeah. seeing all the possibility. And yeah. you kind of remind me that and there's that uh, George McDonald's novel, Donald Grant, Yes, he is a, he's a simple, he's a simple shepherd boy, but then he, he starts gaining some education, yeah. but the greatest, one of the greatest pleasures that he has in his life is just sitting with his Greek new Testament yes. and reading that. through it and finding out about the goodness of the heavenly father. Yeah. And that's just one of his greatest joys. Uh, a verse that really, you know, Philippians really impacted me as a young person and uh, from childhood on hearing my parents teach on you. You know, I press toward them that I may know him. I mean, look at what Paul knew compared to what we know. 
And he's still saying that I may know him because he realized this is the endless journey. This is a story that goes from age to age that we continue learning and growing in him. Oh my goodness, what an adventure. In the ages. In, in the, the, in the coming ages. Yeah, plural, in the yeah. ages. Yeah, I remember I remember when I first ran into that's Ephesians 2 7, I think, yeah. where Paul talks about coming to know God in the coming ages. And I thought, wait a second, I yeah. thought it was just this age and then the age to come. And Paul's saying now, oh no. No, it's going to take unto the ages of the ages. And then even Origen thought that God was the God of the ages and that there would be a time when the ages would even come to a conclusion and God would be all in all. And then we'd even be beyond the ages and we would be perfectly united in, in God's all in all, which is beyond the ages from which the ages came in the first place. So exactly. once you get all of that in your mind, I think it makes you much more resilient in the face of your own trials and the frustrations that you have dealing with other people and the problems that are in the world, if you can see that in the context of this great triumph already now accomplished in Christ, but now working itself out through the, the age to come and the ages to come after that, and then that God will finally be all in all. It sure, it sure makes it easier to wake up in the morning with a smile on your face. Absolutely. You know, the, the idea of a journey is seen just from the words i am i am the path i'm the road i'm i'm you know i'm the way follow me he was on a journey and he says follow me that journey didn't just end at the cross that was that just ended that phase of his life but then we still follow him and paul says those who are led of the spirit led yeah like following him we 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 follow him where he's going I, I speculate that God is on a journey and he's taking us with him. And that journey is just going to continue throughout the ages. My goodness, we can't, it, as, as the scripture says, it hasn't entered into our hearts or our conceptions of what that's going to be like. But boy, we know it's going to be good. Well, it's an encouragement to me, too, to see. I think you're, you're a few years ahead of me in life. I, I just, I'm 60 right now. How old are you? Uh, I, just, I just turned 79. 79. I think some people, when they think about aging, they think, oh, no, I have less and less now. And as yeah. I look at you, from 60 to 79 have been some of your most joyous years filled That's, with new I, insights. And and to me, you know, you seem very alive at 79 years old. And you're not looking at your life as coming to an end. You're looking at continuing to, you know, go forward, continue to discover new things. I'm looking forward to what what, what comes next and to find out and Absolutely. to even know God more. Yeah. You know, so yeah. to me that all seems that all seems very positive and oh, so you're an encouragement you're an encouragement to us. Thank thank you, David. Thank you very much. A friend of mine told me he said he had read somewhere that quite often a person's most productive years are in their latter years. Number one, so much of life Growing up is trying to figure out who you are, what life is, and then making a life, raising a family, all this. And you're not even, you know, you're so busy. And when you come to the time, especially, I mean, I've, I'm, I've been able to have been retired from doing an outside work on a paycheck <laughs> uh, for, for uh, 12 years now. And it's like, wow, they've been the most productive years of my life. And it's really where I knew this was what God had been preparing me for. And so the idea to be able to 
you know, the joy of, of finding out how many people are, we have two websites. The other one is not my website. It's greater-emmanuel.org. And I've got a lot of studies there and, and they reckon, you know, it's, it's, it's something that some of us just inherited. It was started by, by a, uh, a ministry called the Greater Emmanuel Ministries out of Canada. And to realize how many people are coming to these websites every month, it's like uh, between the two websites, we've got a church of 5,000 that are coming and looking into our stuff. And many people, because of my son, making the books available to download freely in PDF, at least. Mm -hmm. All these countries that I'll never visit, we find out, my goodness, you know. I heard from somebody I knew who's a native speaker in Myanmar some years back, and he was going to a an internet cafe, didn't have a computer, but he was downloading some of my work. And he said, thank you for doing this. I have I have eight students in my Bible school in Myanmar. And it's like, wow, you know, it's amazing what the Lord, through what you're doing with these podcasts, like you say, going all over the world, and and we we this is just a, my ministry just operates out of our our family our home you know and it's we're not part of any organization or anything like that but it's it's like Lord what you have done what you have done and are doing what a blessing this journey is I mean it's it's mm -hmm. it's our joy it is truly the joy of the Lord it's carried us through you know? well it's uh, it's been a pleasure getting a chance to visit with you. So I want to recommend to everybody, check out Jonathan Mitchell and look at his uh, translation of the New Testament. Check out some of his uh, commentaries. Go to those uh, go to those websites and look at, uh, download some of the free stuff. And and uh, just, let's just all continue to believe that God is with us and that his word is true and good. And uh, just, Jonathan, just give us one last word to, to head out on. <laughs> Yeah, the Lord is good. His mercies endure forever. He loves us. What more could we ask for? Well, I don't think we could ask for much more. Well, we'll close on that. Jonathan, look forward to the next time we visit with each other, okay? It's been a pleasure, David. It's a real pleasure getting to know you, too. I'm honored. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced. <laughs>